Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together out loud, chapter by chapter. We're in the book of Exodus, and we've looked at a couple of really cool chapters here. The ball has really started to get rolling here, and now we're looking at Exodus chapter 5. And this is one where I think this is kind of where when you're kind of thinking about the, the movie version of the story in your head, this is the part that like starts to feel really dramatic. The, the title here in the ESV, Making Bricks Without Straw. And so this is where you kind of just think to yourself, oh, this, this Pharaoh is just really mean. He's a, he's a bad guy. Uh, but, I mean, is the point here that the, the Pharaoh is a, is a nasty guy who kind of has it coming? Um, is it something else? You know, and that's, that's kind of the thing that we keep looking at here. You know, like, what's, why are we being told these things? What is this doing in the story? Because we saw it earlier. That this is all going towards God delivering his people in a big public way for everyone to see because he has seen his people suffering. So those are the things we're looking at today. And today I'm very excited to, to introduce our guest here. We've got, this is uh, one of my professors here. We've got uh, Pastor and Dr. David Adams. He's Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning. So good to, to hear your voice and to be talking with you and to have you on for Exodus, no less. Thank you very much, Pastor Espinosa. It's great to be with you and with all of our listeners as well. Yeah, and um, you know, I, uh, I I remember it wasn't even that long ago that that I had you uh, for Exodus in the Torah way back uh, <laughs> when I was going through the MDiv. But so Exodus is uh, is certainly I mean I mean a book that. Uh, I think that we all look at regularly and frequently as exegetes, but uh, one that you've looked at a number of times in particular. Yes, I, I've spent a lot of time with the book of Exodus, primarily because it's really the center of the Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the of the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's, you know, these are really, we think of them as five books, but they're really one coherent literary work. And uh, you divide it into five scrolls because it's too big to fit on one scroll, just like First right. and Second Samuel or First and Second Chronicles are divided. Uh, it just so happens that instead of calling them First, Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Torah, they have yeah. developed their own names historically. But the, the the book that part that we call Exodus is critical to the story because it is the point in the narrative of the whole Torah, where two really critical things happen. One is the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and the other is the formalization of the relationship between God and his people in the second part of the book. And so we're here in the early part, and um, our focus is going to be on what God does to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. And I think those two big themes are, in some ways, captured by the names that we've seen. And we were looking at that back in Chapter 3, um, how—well, I mean, it was actually back in Chapter 2 and uh, yeah, then Chapter 3 as well. But just, I mean, Moses' name, right? I mean, what, what does it mean, you know, drawn out of the water? Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Israel's drawn out of the water. Uh, Gershom's name, right? Sojourner in a foreign land, right? Well— 
sound, sounds like Israel again. And so that idea of God putting a name on his people and that name is the name of his redemption, right? The two uh, together, that formalizing the relationship through rescuing them. Uh, it just it seems like that's just kind of getting hinted at uh, in every chapter that we look at here in Exodus. Well, names are very important, uh, especially so in the book of Genesis, where there's a, a naming, we call them puns, they're not really humorous, but uh, a naming device given with every name um, that's, that's important to the story. And here in Exodus, we don't get that naming pun tradition, but the giving of names is important, and, and none more important than the one God gives himself in chapter 15, you know, uh, well, Moses sings it, uh, you know, uh, he sings uh, that uh, Yahweh is the Yeshua, you know, the uh, the Savior, the salvation, the Savior of his people. And that, of course, is the same name that God takes for himself when he becomes man in Jesus Christ. So you're right, the naming of naming is an important feature of how ideas are communicated throughout the Old Testament, but especially in the Torah. Right. Well, right, and uh, and uh, especially, I, mean, I think that's well said. The name of God Himself. How I mean, we looked at that a couple episodes ago. Just uh, the name, uh, what you know, Yahweh even means, um, as even again lending itself to that covenantal idea. Uh, but without any further ado, let's turn to the chapter itself. So we want to go ahead and read the whole chapter straight through. Let it kind of just stick together as a whole, as a unity. But before we do, anything that we should be um, listening out for, keeping keeping our eyes and ears open for, kind of repeating think, themes, keywords? Mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of things. Uh, first thing, in terms of the development of the narrative, there are really uh, several scenes here. In the first scene, Moses and Aaron will meet with Pharaoh, uh, verses 1 to 5. The second scene, verses 6 to 9, where Pharaoh issues a new command to the people. Uh, the third scene, verses 10 to 14, uh, where the people are now have a new burden laid upon them, a new way of working, a burdensome way of working. Uh, the fourth scene, verses 15 to 19, where uh, trouble emerges because they can't fulfill the, the uh, new conditions of work. Uh, the fifth thing where the supervisors then meet with Moses and Aaron and complain. And at the end, the, the last scene, verses 22 and 23, where Moses then turns to God and accuses God of bringing harm upon his people and failing to keep the promise that he had mm -hmm. made to deliver them. So this chapter builds to this conclusion at the end, and this conclusion in uh, the last couple of verses will set the stage for the response that God gives to Moses in chapter six. So uh, the chapter is put together in such a way as to build to this conclusion. And there's one other thing that we should note off the top, mm. and that happens right away at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, we'll talk more about it. But Pharaoh responds to Moses uh, in verse two. But and what he, we won't I won't quote it now. But what he says to Moses in verse two uh, is really a the challenge that God takes up throughout the section of the narrative that we call the plague narratives, right? Uh, chapters mm -hmm. uh, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, and into ten. So um, 
this uh, verse two is very important for setting the trajectory of how the narrative is going to go and what God is doing in response to what Pharaoh says in verse two. So two things, you know, especially to look out in, in terms of the overall flow of the book, Pharaoh's statement in verse two, and then the, the um, accusation of Moses right. uh, at the end of the chapter. Yeah, no, thanks. That's very helpful. We, we've seen, of course, you know, these, whenever you have these quotes, you don't typically have long uh, speeches or, you know, discourses recorded, but when you do have someone speak, you know, look out, um, especially those things that get repeated. Uh, so we'll want to be taking a look at that. And then, yeah, that's really interesting how you point that out. This is all kind of heading towards, um, it looks like this is, this mission has ended in failure with the accusation, which in some ways makes it kind of like uh, the opposite of what happened in chapter four, where, you know, Moses has these objections, but, you know, God deals with them. And at the end, well, hey, like they receive his word, they all bow down, they worship, right? So things are looking good at chapter, <laughs> chapter four is and then end of chapter five. Well, doesn't look like, so yeah, very uh, interesting, a little bit of an ebb and flow here. Um, yeah, so let's go ahead and read it then. And then actually, as, as we do, would you actually do us the honor of opening us up with a prayer? Certainly. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, bless your word and those who hear it, that hearing your word, we may come to believe in Jesus Christ who is revealed in it, may cling to him in faith, may be strengthened in our life before you and our witness to the world. Grant this, Lord, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so here is Exodus chapter 5 in the English Standard Version. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. 
and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and, this, and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't help, but I've mentioned the movie a couple times already. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the uh, DreamWorks adaptation, The Prince of Egypt. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just cool to find uh, high quality children's content that like, narrates Bible stories. Um, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. Uh, you know, not, none of those movie adaptations ever are, but this was one of the scenes I recall, I think they did really well where the the point i it seems of this ter, uh, this this burden right is that the people would turn against Moses and Aaron and that they would have all thought of wanting to go and worship Yahweh the you know he says you know, the, the Lord I don't know this the Lord um that they would have all this notion just taken out of their minds it, it's not just, just that he's being mean but i mean this is a the, the part of the psychological warfare this is the like oh so you guys want to start talking about going and worshiping these strange gods well this will teach you the um the one of the issues that sometimes arises at the very beginning of this chapter uh, among commentators at least is the observation that moses and aaron go on their own initiative to Pharaoh. Hmm. In this case, God doesn't command them to go. Now, of course, they have a general command earlier in the book that they're going to be you know, going and telling Pharaoh to let his people go. But there is no specific instruction at the beginning of this chapter, now go to Pharaoh. And some commentators have argued that uh, the failure here uh, if you want to call it that, in chapter 5, arises from the fact that Moses and Aaron uh, did this. It wasn't God's time that they should go. They did this mm. on their own initiative. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that, but yeah. uh, I mean, I think there may be another explanation for the, you know, what we'll describe for the moment as failure here, rather mm. than simply they did this on their own initiative without you know, without a direct word from God. But some commentators at least raise this as the reason for the, the problem that arises here. And also the wording is interesting in verse one. You know, they go to Pharaoh and they command Pharaoh directly. 
thus says the Lord, let my people go, imperatives you know, hmm. um, here. And, uh, of course, this is generally not the way that one <laughs> has a successful interview with royalty uh, or uh, right. one, uh, one who thinks himself a god. You know, just let me walk in and give you orders here you know, right. in your own court. So, um, you know, hmm. humanly speaking, uh, perhaps that might be part of the reason that Pharaoh reacted negatively. But the right. more important matter is what Pharaoh himself says in verse 2. And uh, maybe we should focus on that for just a moment. Would you okay. just read that over again to, so it'll be in people's minds in verse right. 2? Right. So this is, yeah, in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Yeah. Now, you have to remember, this is a polytheistic environment, right? right? Uh, the Egyptians had, uh, no one knows exactly, but you usually read something like either hundreds or a thousand gods, many of which were imported from other countries. The Egyptians were quite comfortable um, bringing in other gods. We have examples of deities in the Egyptian pantheon that were originally from um, Sudan, for example, the area that we call Sudan today, further south. Later on in Egypt's history, they were quite comfortable identifying the Greek gods with their own deities. So in the polytheistic environment of ancient Egypt, it's not really a problem to introduce a new god. They do one of two things, typically. They either say that this new god is simply a different name for a god we already know. For example, later on, um, well, actually not later on, it was, uh, historically speaking, before the time of Moses, we have an example of an inscription from the Sinai Peninsula, an Egyptian mining colony there, where uh, the uh, female consort of Baal, whose name is Baalat, uh, mm. Mrs. Baal, as I like to call her, <laughs> uh, female form of the name of the god Baal, uh, is identified with the Egyptian goddess Hathor. So, um, you know, one thing that they did was simply um, take a foreign god and say, that foreign god is the same god that we worship by this other name, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Baalat equals Hathor. Other times, they would bring a deity in. If they didn't see a connection, they would simply add the deity to their own pantheon. We have examples of that as well. Uh, one of my favorites is um, this uh, uh, Egyptian deity known as Bess, B-E-S, um, Bess. Bess uh, hmm. is originally probably from the area of Sudan to the south of Egypt and um, represents in Egyptian mythology, Bess is the deity who's always causing trouble for people. You know, if, if um, say, uh, I was trying to print out something really important on my computer and all of a sudden something went haywire with my printer. If I were in ancient Egypt, I would say Bess is the one who does that. He's the, <laughs> he's the trickster, uh, the game player, the deity who's responsible for all the little things that get messed up in life all the time hmm. you know uh and he wasn't originally an egyptian deity at all he was a uh, a deity from kush uh, modern sudan uh, or ethiopia a little further to the east uh depending on 
exactly where you're talking about. But in any case, he was a foreign deity that they just brought into the Egyptian pantheon. So the point here in verse 2, when Pharaoh says, who is, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should right. obey his voice and let Israel go? Um, you know, presumably, we'll take Pharaoh at his word here when he says he doesn't know the name Yahweh. Now, normally that wouldn't be a problem, as I said, but here yeah. Pharaoh is resistant. You know, already back a couple chapters ago, you remember that God had told, uh, already told Moses that you know, Moses would go down, but Pharaoh would not let his people go. And so God would uh, force him to do so with a mighty, uh, with a mighty hand. Right. Um, and uh, so here we get the fulfillment of that prophecy, if you will, where Pharaoh resists. Maybe Moses and Aaron's attitude had a little something to do with that, humanly speaking, but it doesn't mm. really matter. In any case, he lays down the challenge, Pharaoh does, and says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his right. voice? I don't know him, and I'm not going to let Israel go. And it's to answer this question, who is Yahweh, that in the chapters to come, chapter 6, 7, 8, uh, nine in those chapters that you'll be looking at coming forward, you'll notice time and time again that God says to Moses, he's doing this so that the Egyptians will know who I am. Right. And yeah, so I know. It's this that... theme that God is answering Pharaoh's challenge, uh, it runs through the plague narratives. Yeah, I think I think we've been seeing that 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 the knowing and seeing theme is just so key to all of this. Uh, it was, I mean, it was really especially uh, back in chapter three that we really saw that where it was. Where was it there? Um, I think it was. I actually, you know, it was really, it was really. I think, yeah, it was in chapter two that we really saw it because at the very end there, we, we had those words that uh, their cry for rescue for sla from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I mean, which is just such an interesting way that it ends the chapter like that. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that, like, all throughout that chapter, we, we had this, um, I mean, of course, it really happened, but the way it's told, you know, the, the princess— of Egypt goes down into the water and she sees this baby. She hears him cry. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is even set up in the very beginning, right? That the Pharaoh, uh, this new Pharaoh comes along and he does not know Joseph, right? So the, the seeing, hearing, knowing is just all over and over and over again. And so I totally agree. Uh, the point here is, is not like, oh, well, you know, if you had just been more polite, <laughs> you know, there, there it is, guys. Please and thank you are the magic words. You know, just if you leave them out, you may have to make bricks without straw. This is this is no kind of a little just kind of like ethical lesson here. But rather, the point is that he, God's not content, in a way of speaking, to just have Pharaoh grant the request. And then everyone just kind of leaves. And everyone's like, hey, what happened? Any, anyway, we, we don't see those Hebrews around here anymore. No, no, no. Uh, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that everyone sees and everyone knows. Uh, you you got to have the confrontation, though, or else no one's going to see it, no one's going to know. Uh, 30 seconds here, just uh, your brief thoughts, and then we'll get back after the break. 
Okay, just uh, on the verse you were talking about, it's interesting that all the other uh, verbs there at the end of chapter two have an object specified, but the knowing doesn't, you know, yeah. and God knew. Uh, yeah. It's a very abrupt ending, and the only conclusion I think you can draw is that God knew that it was time to act, you know, uh, that yeah. God knew that the moment had come to act on what God knew. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And kind of a kind of leading and, and that's when God knew, right? You know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but right. yeah, uh, very good. Everybody, we got to take that break here, but hang on. We're looking at Exodus chapter five here on Nice Strong Word. We'll be right back. LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Exodus chapter 5, Making Bricks Without Straw, this confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. But as we were just talking about, ultimately, this confrontation that God is having in the context of this polytheistic culture of Egypt, that they don't know the one true God, and he is going to let them see him and know him as well as the people of Israel. We're joined today by uh, our guest. We've got the Reverend Dr. David Adams, Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. I want to make sure to invite all of our live listeners. If you're in St. Louis, you can give us a call 314-821-0850. If you have a question for us, also any questions or comments, you can call one 800 730 27 or you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo 
AJ.org, or if you're following along on the live stream at facebook.com slash AJ Espinosa. Uh, also want to make sure to thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, their website, lhfmissions.org. Thank you guys for underwriting thy strong word. Uh, yeah, so just before the break, uh, we were just talking about, yeah, the, the, the seeing and the knowing. And so I, I really think that is where it's going here that, um, you know, this is, is really interesting because <laughs> uh, Pharaoh seems to have I mean, it's kind of a good strategy, right? Like this is a, he, he wants the people of Israel to shoot the messenger, <laughs> right? Like, so he's going right. to, you know, they're, they're going to say like, you know, I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's on uh, Moses's own uh, lips at the end there. Oh Lord, why, what, why have you done evil to this people? Why'd you ever send me? Right. That's exactly what Pharaoh wants them to say. Like, oh man, why'd we ever think that we should, uh, you know, have this this Yahweh guy in our lives, and why do we ever think that listening to Moses was a good idea? I mean, that's that's falling um, right into Pharaoh's hands. But the the kind of dramatic irony here, right, is that this is all falling into God's plan, because by Pharaoh doing this, and uh, you know what, what's what's that phrase there in uh, twenty one? You made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, right? But but the thing is, by by making all of this just become more, uh, just I mean, it's in it's in the sight, right? It's in their faces of Pharaoh and his servants. The whole the whole matter, the whole thing is just becoming well known. Well, now this is just falling into Yahweh's plan. Everyone is going to see this, and everyone is going to know. Yes, uh, and that's kind of the point we were talking about with verse two. That by the time God is done with them, they will have the answer to the question that you know, that Pharaoh has thrown down here. Who is this Yahweh guy that I should do what he says? Well, you know, hold on, you're going to find out, right? Uh, and and so that's why this verse is so important for setting up the narrative that's to come. As we work through the chapter, we might want to note uh, just a couple of details that help us to understand historically what's going mm. on here uh, as well. For example, in verse 6, Pharaoh commands the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. This actually gives us a little bit of an insight into the way things were structured in Egypt. Uh, the taskmasters of the people would be the uh, you know the native Egyptian uh, people who were responsible for the work getting done. And the foreman, as the ESV translates it, would be the Israelites who were selected to kind of manage their own people. So the chain of command here goes from Pharaoh to the uh, supervisors, you know, the Egyptian supervisors of the of the forced labor. And then uh, those are then transmitted and turned into practical work by the group that the ESV translates as foreman. These would be the, mm -hmm. the native Hebrew or Israelite uh, people who were directly responsible for the, you know, for the working groups who were right. under them. This is a way uh, work was organized. In Egypt, not only was there slave labor, but also uh, the subula, the, uh, the, the, uh, French term corvée or forced labor was a common feature of Egyptian life for Egyptian citizens as well. 
it wasn't uncommon for Egyptian men to have to leave their farms and go to work on major government construction product projects for mm -hmm. several months at a time. Uh, so uh, the forced labor, uh, which the Israelites are enduring, was also uh, something that native Egyptians had to also do. Uh, they weren't slaves in the same sense, but uh, the forced labor was a common feature of Egyptian life in this period and for, you know, for much of ancient Egyptian history. So there's a little insight there. You know, we just kind of yeah. slide over these words, but it really does give us information about how things were done at that time. Well, and that's, that's really helpful because, I mean, I, just, I think it just kind of helps sharpen the picture here that the the narrative the point of the narrative is like not not well hey look at how mean pharaoh was i mean oh they don't he doesn't even give them weekends right it's it's like no that's a that's a very modern way of looking at it that that's not you know like oh like, like he, he's uh there's no union what's going you know i mean that's not those are the sorts of things that we're thinking about but as, as you're saying this is just par for the course here this is how this is how it was if you weren't a member of the aristocracy it didn't matter if you were I mean, it didn't matter, but as you were saying, it could end up being just the same in terms of forced labor, whether you're Egyptian or Hebrew. So it's not that, that's the narrative's point, but again, the, the purpose that it's this turning these, um, as you were describing, the, the foremen are, are actually Hebrews, uh, turning the Hebrew uh, leaders themselves against Moses and Aaron. Um, that it's it's all about this, um, you know, trying trying to I, he's he's trying to just kind of just uh, snuff the thing out, right? Like no no one's going to want to deal with Moses and Aaron. They'll stop hearing. They'll stop listening, right? That's the idea. That he keeps saying they're idle, right? He keeps repeating that you're you're idle because you've got time to to look and to hear other things, right? That I don't want you to be looking at or listening to right so he he's trying to redirect their ears and their eyes uh, that's that's the key of what he's up to here another historical detail in the text that might be of interest to people is this whole matter of the straw and the mud bricks you know the bricks mm. that they're they're making uh, pastor espinoza you will remember that mud brick is the most common construction material in the ancient world. Uh, the thing about mud brick is that it's not baked in an oven. It's simply you know, mud uh, and sand, sometimes with straw. You use straw to stabilize the mixture depending on the, you know, the amount of clay, soil, and the amount of sand that you have to mix together. Uh, depending on the composition, straw was not always added, but it was frequently added to mud brick to help bind it together. And um, so uh, this is the, the way they do this is, you know, they mix the dirt and the water to make mud and put the straw in and mash it all together and put it in a form like a baking pan sort of, you know, to it uh, adopts the kind of sort of a loaf shape. These are mm -hmm. typically, those are, mud bricks are typically, oh, about maybe six to eight inches uh, from front to back and maybe four inches or so thick and maybe about, oh, 10 to 12 inches long. They vary in size, but that's a pretty common size. So bigger than a modern brick. Uh, 
Mm. And they're not baked in an oven. They just set out, they're put in a form, set out to dry. And then you, you know, use them. Uh, typically the way they construct things is they have stones as the foundation layer. Uh, that can be anywhere from a couple of inches to a couple of feet. And then mud brick is used above that. And mud brick was used for everything. It was not just used for common houses, but it was used for temples. It was used for palaces. It was used for city gates and city walls. Uh, it's the most common construction material in the ancient world. And uh, it's cheap and easy. And of course, the reason that you don't bake it is because if you're going to bake it, then you have to collect a lot of wood and that makes it very expensive. And so, right. uh, um, you know, and of course in Egypt, they don't have a lot of wood. Uh, and so it would be even more expensive. And the one time mm -hmm. in the Bible that the Bible actually mentions mud bricks being baked is in the Tower of Babel uh, hmm. episode where we're told that uh, the Babylonians uh, actually baked the mud brick in an oven. And they also used tar to as mortar, which was also imported. So Tower of Babel was a very special structure, very expensive to build. But this was just common material that they're doing here. And the point of the straw is that it helps bind it together. So uh, because there's so much sand in the soil in Egypt, you know, it, it is kind of loose. And so it helps to bind this material together. And so they're going to have to collect the straw in addition to making the bricks. So it's imposing, you know, actually a substantial additional workload on the people. And so um, that's the reason that uh, this is kind of, you know, Pharaoh sets this task that he knows is sort of impossible for them to do. Right. Uh, for one thing, uh, as we're told uh, in verse 12, the people have to scatter throughout the land to gather the straw. Um, if they're going right. to make the mud brick. So they so you have fewer workers. If if a large part of them have to go out and collect a straw, uh, that means there are fewer of them to actually make the bricks. And so the you know it, it, it's a process that is obviously going to fail. And of course that's what the Pharaoh wants. And well and so, also oh, go well, ahead. I just, uh, well I was just thinking, you know, just the the, the idea of scattering. I mean Mm -hmm. you, you see that just so often. You, you mentioned the Tower of Babel, right? And, um, you know, you also think about the, the prophets, the, the idea of the, the people being scattered. I mean, this is always a bad thing. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's always in juxtaposition to, um, to being in one place and gathering to worship, right? I mean, it's like the opposite in a lot of ways. And it actually yeah. kind of intuitively makes sense because if Pharaoh's like, hey, they're just kind of hanging out and they're not getting that much work done and they're all just chit-chatting about, you know, some foreign god that I don't know about. Well, here, I'm just going to send them all over the place. They'll be running around. They'll be running past each other. They'll be running out to the furthest reaches here and they won't have time to just be sitting around the watering hole together talking about this newfangled religion stuff. I mean, like, it seems like it's another way that he's trying to stop them from from getting together and thinking together collectively. I mean, isn't that like also part of what he says, really? I mean, we get back to this and it was back in verse five. Um, it it kind of just, you almost forget about it, um, but it, it kind of like sneaks into it here that in verse five, he says, the people are many. 
see, so we get that comment again. And so rather than back, uh, you know, a couple of chapters ago where the plan was, well, we're going to just forcibly reduce the population um, here. Well, at least we'll just reduce the population density and we'll scatter them. We'll spread them out. So the, the manyness of them and, and them coming together, those seem to be really big points in what Pharaoh is trying to, to deal with here. Yeah, this is really a, a simple political military matter not really a theological matter from Pharaoh's perspective. You'll recall that in this couple of centuries just before the time of Moses, Egypt had been divided, and the northern part of Egypt was ruled by people who were Semites, who were Canaanites, basically, uh, and they had come down to Egypt and had taken over in the Delta. They were called the Hyksos in Egypt, in Egyptian. Well, it's an American uh perversion of an Egyptian uh, phrase that means yeah. foreign rulers. But uh, so in the century before the time of Moses, the Egyptians finally drove out the military group that was, um, you know, controlling the Delta. And the Israelites would have been identified in the Egyptian mind with those Hyksos people who were, um, you know, who were who had taken control of Egypt. So Pharaoh wants to keep the people divided so that they can't reassemble a strong political military force and challenge his rule again. So Pharaoh is thinking in terms of practical politics, if you will. Uh, he doesn't want to give them a chance to concentrate their power so that mm -hmm. they might rebel and take control of the Delta again. So he wants them to be scattered. And, uh, you know, it's a case of sort of divide and conquer, as we might say today. Right. So Pharaoh is, you know, is uh, acting out of what we might think of a simple political expediency in trying to divide the people and keep them apart. And as you said, he's quite successful at that. Right, right. It, it seems it seems that it's all working out according to what he had in mind, and uh, and and really to get back to what you were saying about the bricks too. I mean, it's just there is something of a juxtaposition then that Pharaoh he's just all operating on, on a very you know worldly perspective, like oh this is a lot of people in one place that apparently are getting together and talking a lot about foreign stuff this is no good for me politically right uh, he's just dealing with uh, political situations and, and political terms i mean this is like the way that you know herod or that rome right was dealing with the lord yep. jesus uh, and the early christians right i mean it's just it's just a worldly power thing to them but there's another perspective here and it's not just about worldly power i mean and so this is where, where we can go wrong here because as you were saying this stuff about you know the making the bricks of course when when he throws in the you know not uh, giving them straw part that there's a little bit of a change but the point was not oh well you know here they are in egypt and they they're forced to like, make bricks that's so terrible uh, i mean maybe it was um i mean certainly it was I'm, I'm sure um you know the oppression of of the poor at the hands of the aristocracy uh it's pretty much always not pretty, but um, especially not in the ancient world. Uh, but but the point is not that this was really exceptionally bad, though. And so God was like, oh, wow, right. well, this is just inhumane treatment. And so I've got to, you know, liberate 
uh, you know, these, these people who are being unfairly treated. Uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual perspective here that he's wanting to make people see and know the true God and gather a people together for himself. So, I mean, there's, there's two, I mean, along with these the things that we're seeing, um, there's just two different perspectives going on here. Right. What God is doing is not immediately obvious to human eyes because we see things in the short term. God is thinking in the long term, if you will, about fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham and Abraham's descendants uh, of a people who would come from Abraham, who would ultimately also lead to the birth of the one who would redeem all mankind from bondage. And so the work, so the redemptive work that God is doing here is not only just to get Israel out of Egypt, but also to prophesy through action what God is going to do in terms of redeeming the whole world. So there's more than one thing going on here. There's always the human perspective. And sometimes, you know, I, I think at Christians, uh, we sometimes lose sight of the human perspective. We forget the political, economic realities of the history because we think, only, we think of it only in spiritual terms. Uh, so sometimes it's useful to be reminded of the historical reality. But uh, we always have to keep in mind that the historical reality is part of the foreshadowing that God is doing, showing what he's going to do ultimately in Christ to redeem all mankind. And, and certainly we've seen how there has already been a, a good little bit of foreshadowing uh, pointing ahead to the Lord Jesus. I mean, when we were seeing how uh, you have Moses returning from uh, Midian to go back to Egypt, and so he's, uh, you know, he's taking his his family back, right? And it's it's so interesting because the story seems to indicate that um, Zipporah had just around the same time um, given birth to their son Gershom, right? So you've got, you know, here here's you know the father um, packing up his uh, wife right around the time of her giving birth and their child on the donkey <laughs> to to go back to Egypt, right? Because, no, what, what did it say, right? The men who uh, sought to kill you are dead, right? And that, that yeah. feels just like the Holy Family returning from Egypt, right? So, I mean, it's really, it's really fascinating how you have all these different uh, things as you were just kind of lining it up for us that uh, it's just, it's like you were saying, prophesying through action. I, uh, we got we got some questions that came in over email that I want to say uh, take a look Great. at here. Um, you're you're kind of talking about the spiritual perspective a little bit that we get uh, from in our modern times. One of the things I think that jumps off the page for us in our perspective, uh, spiritually particular, is that word "evil" there uh, at the end and chapter oh, and verse yeah. twenty-two, right? Um, I, that, I, that I think someone brought that up because I yeah, want to talk yeah. about that word. Yeah, because I think it, and we've, because I think we talked about it a little bit here, because we we see it in the Psalms all the time, but um, it's always good to to bring it up again. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's I think it seems very harsh to us, and we're like, what? How could he even, you know, suggest that God would do evil? Um, you know, and so I think I think the questions that came in over email were sort of like, you know, is this a correct assessment on Moses's part that you know that, that God has done evil here? Is this evil a uh, 
a, a direct result of God's will, or does it just kind of passive, passively uh, develop? So um, we, we try to go very theological on this word evil, but maybe we shouldn't be so quick to go there. Well, uh, and this is a case of translation sometimes giving us problems. The, the word ra'ah right. uh, in Hebrew can mean to do evil, but it can also have, if you will, a, a, a sense that's a little less morally oriented. It can just mean to, to harm someone. And I think that the ESV is perhaps over-translated here, and they follow the, they're following the tradition of the King James, which right. translates it this way also. But I, I think in this case, it's not moral evil that Moses is talking about. He's simply uh, saying, you have brought harm upon the people. Mm -hmm. So I, I think evil is probably, uh, you know, probably not the right, the best choice of words in English here. Um, you know, we could talk at some length about the challenges of translating and picking words in English that correspond to the sense of the original text. Right. But when God, um, you know, when Moses turns to God, he's not accusing God of being immoral. He's right. simply saying, uh, this hasn't turned out the way that you said, you, you kind of led me to believe that it was going to turn out. So when he says, right. oh, Lord, why have you done, the ESV translates, why have you done evil to this people? I would I would probably translate that, oh, Lord, why have you harmed this right. people? You right. Know, because uh, ever since I came to speak in your name, uh, he, that is Pharaoh, has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So yeah. the word evil has a moral overtone, uh, spiritual overtone, that is probably not right in this case. Right. Well, and that's, um, yeah, I thank you for breaking it down for us helpfully like that. Uh, you know, it's difficult, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned too also that they're just following the King James Version, because I think it's one of the many, many examples of where um, it's really dangerous to follow the King James Version, uh, not because the King James was wrong. And see, this is the, the, the hard thing, because if you look in the history of the English language, the word evil actually used to have a sense um, that was a lot more, uh, well, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a bigger part of the word, and it was a lot closer, actually, to the Hebrew word uh, of Ra, that you could, you could hear, hear people talking about an evil odor, Right, which did not yeah, mean uh, right. the, the scent of a demon, but just something that smelled bad. Smelled bad, um, right? Or it, it, it was an evil day, referring to it being, uh, you know, like just uh, you know, hot and muggy, right? right. Or uh, you know, people talking about uh, an evil plant or an evil crop uh, to say it was uh, w worthless or, or no good, right? So all of those are evil, and not in a moral sense, right? And so we we've had since the time that the King James Version was translated, this this narrowing of the meaning. So it didn't just mean kind of bad um, anymore or, or, or harmful or no good. It just specifically means now that in days, uh, you know, uh, moral evil. And so it's, I mean, it's the difficulty of translation, right? You, you can stick with the the uh, traditional translation, but the problem is the ground's moving from underneath you. The words themselves are changing their meaning. And so it's like, even though the ESV is sticking with an old translation, the word changed. And so now it doesn't even mean the same thing anymore. 
No, that's exactly right. And it's one of the challenges of translating the Bibles. You know, it's not just understanding uh, the grammar and syntax, but also understanding the the connotation that words have in the language you're translating into in English in this case. Right. Well, and then conversely, kind of understanding a little bit when you're looking at former translations and you're trying to be sensitive to, to that, understanding you know, uh, 17th century English. And that's, uh, turns out a lot harder than, than, uh, it seems to be when you're looking at it, but, uh, only maybe, uh, two minutes here, but yeah, just taking a look here now at the chapter, as we've gone through it as a whole, I mean, we've kind of talked about the trajectory and some of the key themes, but just any, any other things that pop out at you or any, um, thoughts by way of conclusion here? Well, we might just take a look at the end of the chapter just to set up what's going to happen next. Because, you know, in verse 20, Moses and Aaron uh, meet with the supervisors who had been talking with Pharaoh. And they, you know, accuse Moses uh, of making their aroma stink in the sight right. of Pharaoh. It's a mixed metaphor, right? You, yeah. uh, you don't stink in the eyes, but uh, you stink <laughs> in the nose. But yeah. uh, we'll we'll forgive the Holy Spirit for mixing his metaphors at this <laughs> point. And uh, because the point here is the last phrase, you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so in the next chapter, Moses is going to go to God and uh, you know, in effect, lay this on the table and say to God, what are you going to do about this? You, know, you promised to deliver and you haven't. And so this sets the scene for the conversation that will take place between God and Moses in chapter six. And we'll leave that for your next session and your next guest to fill out. But it's yeah. important to see that this episode in chapter five doesn't just, it's not just a random detail in terms of Israel's history. It's mm -hmm. there to, in a sense, set the stage for what God is going to say to Moses in chapter six. And then, as you said, too, um, setting a pattern that we see even with the coming of Christ, saying, why, why did he let things get so bad? Well, so that the Lord would be seen and that all would know through Jesus Christ and his redemption. So thank you so much. It was uh, awesome having you on, the, just the depth that you brought. Um, we got to have you on again. Thank you so much. I'm at your service whenever you want me. You know where I live. Well, you don't know where I live, <laughs> but you know my phone number. That's right. Very good. Thank you, everybody. That was the Reverend Dr. David Adams, Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Moving on to Chapter 6. Till then, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.